Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Vivienne Marks. We're at Inso Winery in Portland. It's Friday, August 16, 2019. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Vivienne. Of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, with the first question, the most important question, why wine? So, why wine? That's a great question. Um, it was, gosh, 13 years ago in April that I was uh, doing a wine tasting um, for the Spring Barrel Weekend up at Keona Winery uh, on Red Mountain in Washington State. Um, as part of that weekend, one of their winemakers was doing a, they're doing a barrel tasting of Cabernet Franc. It was Franc aged four different ways. So new French oak, neutral French oak, new American oak, uh, neutral American oak. And then we were talking through the process of, you know, what they did for the blend. And then for those of us that were engaged and interested, uh, we were chatting about what different blends would look like. Um, there was a group of, I don't know, it was probably 40 or so of us. I got engrossed in a conversation with the winemaker. Next thing I know, it's 45 minutes later. We've been playing around with blending and chatting about it and really going down the rabbit hole. I looked around and we're the only two left. Asked the winemaker, what happened to everybody else? And he said, well, you know, uh, I don't know. They got bored with our level of engagement around it. And that was sort of the point at which I realized that uh, in addition to my great love of the consumption of wine, that I had a real interest in the art and science behind it, and that sort of spurred the trajectory that led to today. Excellent. So what was your, once you decide, discovered that, what's the next step? Well, the next step was to figure out how the heck to make that happen. Uh, I did a lot of research into what the different options would be. Um, it was definitely a situation where I had to continue to have a full-time day job, so the education piece had to be flexible. Um, I ended up working with Washington State University through their extension campus, which at the time was through the old uh, ag buildings out in their Prosser, Washington, IRF campus. Um, I did an 18-month uh, viticulture, growth cultivation, wine grapes program, and then I did an 18-month enology science and winemaking program as well, spread out over about a four-and-a-half-year time frame because that's the way that the, the sessions mm -hmm. uh, ended up linking up. Um, during that time, at the same time, I was exploring opportunities to volunteer, do any sort of hands-on work that I could. Also, uh, during that time, I would do things like pick up a couple hundred pounds of this grape, that grape, and producing wine in the garage. I figured that as part of my process, moving down that road, that I would certainly make mistakes, and I wanted to get those out of the way before anything was in a commercial setting. And so that was, that was one of the pieces that may not seem like it was very helpful, but just to, um, to get an understanding of the process and how I might uh, make errors in that process. The, the garage stuff was really fun for that because it gave me a chance to, uh, to do it without any major consequences. Mm -hmm. And I definitely had some batches that did not necessarily go as planned. Um, <laughs> there was some really interesting, really beautiful stuff that came out of that. Um, but let's see, while I was uh, attending those programs, um, I did some work associated with my program out at Davenlore Winery in Prosser. Um, their owners were uh, uh, Joan Davenport, uh, was a soil scientist for Washington State University. She was part of my viticulture program. And then Gordon Taylor, their winemaker, uh, was 
one of the main instructors in my science and winemaking program. And so did quite a bit of work out there on the uh, long weekends that we would spend out in Prosser. And then uh, meanwhile, I was volunteering anywhere and everywhere that would have me. Um, I actually did a lot of uh, free volunteer work for Enso Winery, where I ended up eventually getting on. Uh, Harvest of 2012, I did weekend harvest intern work out at Montnor Estates. Uh, it was one of those where I had applied for their uh, main red wine internship, and I think at a certain point that Ben Thomas, who was the red winemaker there at, the, at that point, uh, got tired of hearing from me and me asking questions, so finally said, show up with your idea and your social security card on Saturday, and we're just going to get you working on things. <laughs> Which, you know, it was great, because it stopped me... Uh, reaching out every week and asking questions and uh, wanting to seek more information. Um, let's see, that same year, uh, Harvest of 2012 is when I, I was volunteering a whole bunch at ENSO. I continued that into the spring of 2013 and then ended up getting on at ENSO as their, uh, started out as a harvest intern and then eventually moved into an assistant winemaker role. Um, which Enso is also the site at which I have uh, produced the Ram Cellars wine since 2014. Uh, it made a lot of sense to partner with them to rent space and do the production on site mm -hmm. as I was already here doing their wine work for them as well. Um, and so let's see, that puts us, that's right around 2014. So, uh, 2014 brought in the, the first round of grapes for Ram Cellars. It was until 2016 before there were wines out in the marketplace. So that, that first round of the white wines got a little bit of extra aging. I just wanted to roll everything out at the same time. Spent a couple of years, uh, you know, hemorrhaging money commercially. <laughs> and Roots actually having product available for sale. And then uh, hit the ground running in, uh, it was March 1st of 2016 that I was actually officially out in the marketplace and selling the wines. Uh, walking down the road with bottles of wine in hand, uh, selling, self-distributing, uh, doing all the demos, doing the everything. I mean, up until actually this month, it has been a one-person show for Ram Sellers. I finally added a production assistant um, this last week. We saw that, congratulations. Yeah, well, that, that you know, I, I had this thought that uh, in the event that, you know, I, I break my leg or something something goes awry, it would be nice to be able to continue to make deliveries <laughs> and make sure that the wines are okay in barrel. So uh, my good friend, uh, Rebecca Fry, had, uh, she has helped out on a volunteer basis with things like bottling, et cetera, in the past. And when I was looking for help. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons that I chose to bring Rebecca on, uh, she is also a member of the LGBTQIA community. Um, I want to do as much as I can to create inroads in the industry for other folks uh, across, the, across that spectrum. And so it was very important to me to provide an opportunity for someone else in that broader community to get a foothold in wine. Uh, sure. Like I said, I don't feel like I think that we are underrepresented in the Oregon wine industry, and um, one of my goals is to be a part of changing that. And so, also, it's nice to have some help. <laughs> Why did you think it was important to do the formal education part when you did? So, I felt like the combination of, because I felt like the hands-on experience combined with the formal education part at the same time um, it was going to be really important to tie it all together. Uh, certainly, I am. Um, I learn very well through uh, through actual the educational side of things. You know. Uh, textbooks, videos, those types of things. But at the end of the day, to tie together all that knowledge, the hands-on piece is really important. And so as soon as I was able to identify that avenue through the Wazoo Extension Campus for that, those programs, 
I wanted to make sure at the same time that I was doing both of those simultaneously, mm -hmm. getting that hands-on experience at the same time, which the great thing about those programs that I attended was that the coursework was online and then it was every two months I was out in Prosser for a long weekend to do the hands-on stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny because folks that do those programs now, there's a beautiful new wine science center along the river in the Tri-Cities. St. Michelle Brands threw a whole bunch of money at it. However, there were real advantages to doing the coursework that I did on-site in Prosser. Um, they had a research vineyard on-site, so all of the various different rootstock uh, varietals, they were actually growing to full maturity, so you could see what those looked like. Uh, you know, for reference, there's a reason that we don't make wine from most of those. Uh, those <laughs> grapes aren't as palatable as the Vitus vinifera, but uh, it was there were some really interesting, great things. And of course, you know, a lot of the equipment was old. The buildings were 1960s era, etc. But the education that I gained from it was just the same as if I had been doing it in the fancy new building <laughs> down along the river in the Tri Cities. So. And timing-wise, I pretty much got that rolling as soon as I could uh, once, I, once I was able to figure out what options were available program-wise and uh, wanted to get things rolling. I knew that it would be a long road and that it was an adventure that I was going to embark on that may or may not actually lead to the end goal, but uh, you know, some, sometimes you work hard and you get lucky and things work out, so. So let's talk about that a little bit. So what was the... When you started, what was your kind of end? Did you have a goal in mind? Did you have a vision of your wine future? So I did, but I, I think that uh, I had a longer trajectory in mind because I didn't necessarily, um, I wasn't able to visualize the opportunities that would be out there for me just in terms of producing because as a smaller producer, literally starting the brand um, myself and financing that myself um, through savings and you know borrowing minimal amounts of money. It's a funny thing. Uh, starting a business where banks are happy to ask you uh, what your two-year sales history is and that's you know conversation goes something like well that's why I'm here because I'd like to have a two-year sales history um, Mercy Corps uh, actually was a great partner for Ram Sellers. They were able to provide some uh, an influx of capital during the first several years through some small uh, business microloans that made all the difference because, of course, I was financing all of this myself, um, saving money for my day job up over time, and uh, that's where I came up with the initial startup capital. Um, but initially, setting out down this path, I figured that this would be something that, you know, 15, 20 years from the start of attending school that I would be there. Um, when I started working here for Enso, uh, it became clear that there would potentially be an opportunity to rent space and produce on site here. And once I uh, got more of an insight into the industry and realized how many producers were in a similar situation where producers were sharing space, uh, you know, that crystallized for me and those time frames moved up. And you know, sometimes, like I said, right place, right time, right opportunities leads to things happening faster. And so. Uh, there was there were real synergies there, and I'm very thankful for how that all worked out. Because honestly, based on my original time frames, it would probably be another five years before I before I thought that I would be able to get things going on my own. I figured I would be doing a lot more work in the industry for others uh, down that road. But my goal had always been to open you know a micro winery and. Um, produce on a very small scale and then you know see where that goes from there but uh, it was just you know nice to have things line up organically like that where I was able to get the stream off the ground a decade before I actually thought I would sure. so sure so tell me about this the starting tell me about the the sort of the choosing the name ramp seller choosing what kind of wines you're gonna make how much you're gonna make 
and the kind of the growth of the brand. Yeah. So uh, Ram Sellers, the name actually, it, it's my grandfather's initials. Um, his name was Roger Allen Marks. Those were also uh, my initials at birth, but the winery was not named after me. It was named after my grandfather um, to basically pay homage to family and those who came before us. Um, his leadership and the example that he set uh, for the family in my life um, made a huge difference and he was always one to encourage me to to go for things when the opportunity presented themselves and so um, although he had already uh, passed on several years before when I was ready to to pull everything together to launch the winery it made a lot of sense to name it after him and pay that respect to him um, you know luckily those initials also uh, tied in with the animal branding and so uh, because obviously labels wise you've got to have something that stands out to the customer on the shelf and is not overly long I mean it tried to uh, bring those things together in such a way that made it a marketable brand, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, as far as the wines that I initially rolled out, um, I, I've always had a particular affinity for the, the red Bordeaux varietals. Uh, the first wines that were part of the catalog, I brought in, the very first harvest I brought in, it was three quarters of a ton of Cabernet Franc, three quarters of a ton of Malbec, and a a combined half ton of uh, Pinot Gris and Riesling that I did a white blend with. Um, the reason that I chose uh, those specific varietals on the red side, I've always felt like Cabernet Franc and Malbec are undersung in the Bordeaux catalog. The French often use them as blending wines. Obviously there are some great examples of single varietal wines, but I really wanted to showcase what each of those varietals had to offer mm -hmm. in single varietal offerings. Uh, as far as the whites go, um, was looking initially to roll something out that was an easy drinking uh, white blend essentially, mm -hmm. which um, what I found with that particular combination is that we are in a very saturated marketplace for uh, those varietals and white blends are a tough sell. And so down the line, the white offerings in the catalog evolved to, uh, I dropped the Pinot Gris out of the program. Uh, I've always had a particular affinity for Riesling. Um, so that has remained a part of the catalog, but in future vintages, then I did add Gruner Veltliner and Gewürztraminer to the catalog as well. So tell me, about, tell me about the kind of getting started and then like the, the growth, how you've, how you've tro chosen to grow and how you're kind of hoping to grow looking forward. Well, you know, the initial, the initial growth and the choices that I made around uh, ramping up in production, that was initially it was, you know, largely guesswork uh, just in terms of because obviously to head out into the marketplace with a brand that no one has ever heard of and to attempt to sell those wines. Of course, while I was out there uh, making those sales calls, trying to get things off the ground, I was having to make the decisions for the next contracts for that following harvest. And so the initial growth, um, I, I doubled production uh, from 2014 to 2015. I also added uh, Tempranillo into the mix. Um, it took me, I wasn't able to get a, a vineyard source for the Tempranillo lined up um, in, for the 2014 harvest. Also, limited budget, all that good stuff. <laughs> Wanted to make sure. The, the other piece was starting out with the Cab Franc and the Malbec uh, was that I had the thought that in the event that all, this all goes terribly wrong, what can I handle having a half pallet up in my garage until it's gone? So 
you know, selfishly, I'm like, well, I want to hedge my bets here and uh, make sure that, you know, this, this goes to a good cause if I don't, uh, if it's not commercially successful. Um, successive vintages, I've actually had the marketplace data to be able to, to look and run those numbers. I'm big on, you know, forecasting and trying to figure out uh, what I actually sell of a given wine in a vintage. Um, for this harvest coming up, I'm actually, I think I'm pretty much just going to be producing rosé, mm -hmm. just based on what I have in barrel right now for the reds, um, and then my bottle stock as far as the whites go, just kind of a catch-up year as the as the market stabilizes mm -hmm. for me. So, um, you know, and I would say those next couple of vintages, it was equal parts guesswork and forecasting, and it's definitely moved more in the last couple of vintages to more based on the the historical data for how things have sold. So. You mentioned the importance to yourself in kind of doing the, the, the education and the hands-on work at the same time. Yeah. So tell me about your kind of winemaking philosophy, what you maybe thought it was when you started and maybe what it is now. Well, um, the thing that fascinated me and the thing that really led me down this road was that initial interaction that I was having with uh, the winemaker at Kiona where we were talking about the different uh, oak treatments for that Cabernet Franc. The thing that really sparked my interest was um, the fact that you could take 50 different folks, work with the same grapes, and produce a different wine based on all of the different choices mm -hmm. along that road. And so, um, for me personally, stylistically, uh, my goal is to showcase what the varietal and the specific vintage have to offer, which means, Conversely to some larger brands, you know, my wines each year are going to have fluctuations in characteristics outside of those varietal specific characteristics just based on the growing season. Um, I definitely pursue a hands-off approach, um, you know, natural wines are all the rage these days, but it's something that a lot of us have been doing for some time. You know, the, the very minimum amount of sulfites necessary in order to ensure shelf stability, because I certainly, I don't see myself ever going to a sulfite-free matrix just because the shelf stability just drops off at that point. Um, even once you open up the bottle, you start to see a, a decline in quality with oxidation. And so, but literally uh, as minimal inputs as possible, allowing everything to ferment spontaneously. Um, the first couple of vintages for the whites and the first vintage of rosé, I did actually do filtration uh, just to ensure the, the aesthetic qualities of it. But as the marketplace has come around in terms of the natural wines, I have also gone to uh, nothing being filtered. Uh, none of my wines are ever fined with any sort of commercial fining agent. Um, I, my goal is to bring to your table a re a, the truest representation of what that grape in the growing season had to offer. So along those lines, as you're choosing vineyard sites, what are you looking for in, in a grape source? The biggest thing that I'm looking for in a grape source is not only a meticulous attention to detail for the handling of the grapes, uh, but a conscientious handling of them. Um, a couple of the vineyard sites that I work with, the reason that they haven't gone for the full uh, organic certification is because that costs extra, extra time and extra money to do. They're essentially managing those sites in that way. Mm -hmm. um, the other piece of it is just great communication from my vineyard partners. Um, you know, the, the rest of the year before harvest, we're checking in with each other, you know, every month or so. But when it comes to harvest, I've got to have numbers daily because uh, the other piece of my winemaking style is I end up picking the grapes earlier than um, some of the other producers. One of my vineyard sites always teases me about that because they know harvest has started because I am, um, 
you know, that I'm bringing in grapes. Um, the reason that I do that is I, I make acid forward wines. I want to preserve that acidity once we get to the optimal, uh, the optimal levels in terms of sugar, that acid starts to drop off very quickly. So I want to be able to work with someone who is able to work with me for a quick turnaround time once those numbers are in the right range. So, so we talked earlier about uh, being a member of the LGBTQIA community mm -hmm. and wanting to be kind of a, a, a path forward for others. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your experience as being part of that community in the wine industry and sort of what you're hoping will be happening in, in, the, in the industry. Well, um, the first, let's see here, uh, the first four years commercially for Ram Cellars, um, I was not uh, openly out as myself yet. Um, so that actually, that just happened last year for me and my observation uh, during the entirety of the time that I've spent uh, working in the wine industry in the Northwest is just that um, the LGBTQIA plus community is definitely underrepresented. Um, certainly uh, in, in terms of demographics versus the you know, the overall population, you just don't see as many winemakers that are part of that community. Um, I hard pressed to find another openly transgender winemaker. Um, I hope that one of my goals is to continue to be visible in that way. I want to, you know, it's think about it as like a gift to my uh, younger self. The, you know, for other folks out there that are wondering whether or not they can exist as themselves and, uh, you know, move through space and do the things that they want to do uh, in the world, um, I would like to think of myself as a beacon for them. Um, I, I have the wherewithal to, uh, to be openly visible as myself and handle the sometimes uh, tougher nuances of that. Um, because it certainly has, it at times changes the way that the marketplace has received me. I certainly, uh, when, I, when I came out, I, uh, there were points at which I, uh, you know, I, did, I did lose some business, I did pick up some additional business, and I understand that's just the way that things work. Um, you know, it, it, it made for an interesting business landscape for the winery because last year was certainly a major growth year, but during that time frame where I was in the process of working out my coming out, I definitely did not pursue additional commercial accounts during that time because I figured for the, I already was going to have to have an interesting conversation with my current commercial accounts while I was working through my process. And so um, I've finally gotten back on the sales trail this year and really been out there hitting it, trying to get uh, new accounts, especially with the launch of the, there's a launch of a new label this year for Ram Sellers, um, dubbed the Viv label, which while uh, that is the shorthand for my name, it is also, it's the French root word that means to live, to be alive. The way that I think about it, with my coming out and being myself process, I will continue to exist for much longer than I would have otherwise. I have, I feel like I have a responsibility with that time to do good for my community and give back. And with the Viv label, um, that is a, uh, that label, there's a donation component of that. So for every bottle of the Viv wines that is sold, $5 gets donated to a partner organization that provides direct support to transgender folks. This year's partner is the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. Uh, and the reason that I chose the TLDEF for the first partnership was because they have an initiative called the Name Change Project, and they've helped. A, the, when I looked earlier this year, it was already up to 183,000 plus folks. Uh, navigate through the costs associated with the various different legal processes in every state because it varies from state to state. All of the hoops that you have to jump through not only to change your name but to update your gender on your identification and it's a very involved process. Um, I started working on it 
myself earlier this year and I did a ton of research and I was very efficient about it and it still took me six months from court date to actually physically change my name to actually receiving the correct social security card and so it definitely takes takes time and yeah. it's that can be a barrier to folks actually being themselves on paper um, that is it just it inspired me to want to partner with them mm -hmm. for future iterations of the Viv label I don't have it worked out yet but really eventually I would like to align that with working with uh, more local organizations that provide direct support to transgender youth and teens transgender and non-binary youth and teens because uh, I really do feel like those folks are the bravest in our community it was it was hard enough for me to come out and be myself at 37. Um, you know, imagining having done that, you know, growing up in rural eastern Washington at, you know, 12, 17. It just, it's mind-blowing that folks have that kind of courage. And so. Wow. That's really, really cool. Really cool. Um, you mentioned marketing and selling your wine and, have, and kind of managing that while going through your own transition. Tell me about how you market and sell your wine and, and sort of what you're hoping in the future. Well, I mean, because I self-distribute, I, I sell my own stuff, I distribute my own stuff, I generally, well, with bringing on help, I'll get Rebecca up to speed and she'll actually be helping me with some of the pourings and things, which again, that'll be fantastic. <laughs> I might not have every Saturday book for the rest of my life, so I look, I look forward to doing things that normal people do on the weekends. Um, but I really feel like um, my strength in selling my wines is the fact that I am the person that's out there selling them, I am the face of the brand, uh, connecting with my accounts over the years, um, able to forge those authentic human connections and really connect with folks. So it's not so much visiting an account as it is stopping by and seeing friends and then you know the collateral of that is also that wine is being sold and showing up on the shelf for the consumers so um, but as far as that goes um, just I've just tried to dial it in and work with uh, partners out there that are open to wines produced by a member of my community. Um, I have some really great partners out there in selling the wines. Um, New Seasons actually specifically has been terribly supportive of me. Um, the eight of their stores across the greater Portland area that carry the product. If anything, when I went through my coming out process and talking to all of my accounts across the board, their response was that they all wanted to double down and make sure that they provided as much support to me as possible. And they have been a huge part of the brand presence for Ram sellers in and around the greater Portland area. So very thankful for them. Um, as far as, you know, like the smaller wine shops and things that I work with, um, I just have some really great, really supportive folks that, you know, they uh, enjoyed me uh, as the character that I used to play on the TV show of life before <laughs> I could be myself. And they continue to connect with and enjoy me now. So um, I'm really lucky because I have a lot of authentic relationships with folks out in the industry in terms of uh, retailers and so it makes a big difference. Uh, the, you know, the strengths with that is that the accounts that do carry my wines, they do a great job of highlighting them for folks and really calling attention to them. Mm -hmm. um, with the Viv wines, because they've been, it's a very limited release. I, I only did, for the initial launch of the Viv wines, I did uh, 25 cases of a 2015 Malbec, which there's, I'll get to the story behind that in a, in a second. It's kind of a fun one. But, and then I did only a half barrel's worth, so only basically 13 cases of a white blend of uh, Gewürztraminer and Riesling. And then I also did a half barrel of a Rosé of Petit Verdot. Uh, the Rosé of Petit Verdot, every harvest I try to either produce in a style that is atypical or do something that makes me nervous, pushes the envelope. Having not seen much, if any, uh, takes on 
uh, petit verdot done in a rosé style like that, I wanted to give that a shot. Um, it ended up being a really fun wine in the end. Um, but again, with a really small release amounts of those wines, I have to be really targeted about where I'm selling it. So I just have, there are a couple of uh, wine shops between Astoria to the St. John's area in Portland and then Forest Grove literally that that actually sell um, iterations of the Viv label. It's just such a small uh, release because it was just under 50 cases in total for all of it when it was all said and done. But I also wanted to make sure that um, you know it's an interesting thing to launch a sub-label um, with being out there trying to sell the Ram Cellars wines as well. I don't want to create too much cross-competition. Um, mm -hmm. I released the Viv label wines. It was April 20th of this year, and my focus since they have been released, and my goal is to sell through those as quickly as possible so we can get those donation dollars over the TLDEF. Um, the events that I've done around that, because the Ram Cellars Spring release event, I, um, the focus was on the Viv wines. I, historically have not always done a tasting fee for events like that but went ahead and um, for the events that I have done since then that were you know direct Ram Sellers events I have any tasting fees associated with the events have also been rolled into donation to TLDEF we did a raffle on the April 20th event actually on the April 20th Viv launch event we raised a thousand dollars for the TLDEF in that one night between the tasting fees the sale of the bottles and then the raffle awesome. and so up to date it's up to it's just under $2,400 raised so far, which um, it's just, it's important. Certainly, um, you know, the, the focus around that and focusing on the sale of those wines, um, it has meant that I haven't been able to focus as much on the sale of the, the Ram Cellar specific label wines. Kind of had that on autopilot, but I think it's really incredibly important and I want to make sure that um, I place an emphasis on uh, getting those wines out to consumers, get those sold so that we can get those donation dollars over the TLDEF, so. Excellent. What's the story about the 2015 Malbec? So, in the early days of Ram Cellars, the budget was such that if I had three or four barrels of something, you know, check, check the winery checking account balance, and it may be that half of it would get bottled and then I'd hope to sell more wine in the next two or three months. And then, because obviously the difference between bottle aging and barrel aging gets significant pretty quickly. Um, but the 2015 Malbec, when I did the bottling run for that, there were four barrels of it. I bottled the first 75 cases and then it was about six months that had gone by before it was going to be an opportunity to bottle again. Did not want to include that with the same label. Didn't know what to what the heck to do with that barrel of the Malbec. So I went, okay, we'll shuffle this back to the corner of the winery. Uh, at some point, this may actually be a reserve wine for Ram Cellars. See what happens with it. Um, but last fall, then, when the, the genesis of the Viv Label project started to come together, I had a pretty good idea that I wanted to do that uh, rosé of Petit Verdot. And assuming that it worked out, go ahead and roll that into the label. I had an idea for the white blend. Went. Well, what the heck am I supposed to do for the red wine component? I went, oh, hold on. I've got this special barrel, which most of my reds end up aged anywhere between 16 to 24 months in neutral French oak. The Viv Malbec actually got 36 months, the longest aged uh, red wine in the catalog. Um, it really, it's fun just to see the difference uh, in how that progressed versus the, the 2015 Malbec for the Ram Sellers label has long since been sold out, but I did manage to track down a bottle recently and just tried the two of them side by side and just the difference in the aging profile on both was really interesting and significant with that extra year of barrel aging. So 
well, we, we could call it a happy accident uh, due to budgetary restrictions, <laughs> as it were. Um, but I was very, very happy to have that available to to roll out for the label because it definitely it it is a very special wine in terms of uh, flavor profile, and I wanted to make sure that what I was bringing to the table for the Viv label was the best of what I produce. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes things just work out. <laughs> Divine intervention. And exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned your your kind of your goal for Ram Cellars was, was small, and you're working here at Enso, which is also small urban. Tell me about the kind of advantages and disadvantages to the small urban winery model. <sighs> well, there are. I suppose that there are uh, many of both. Um, <laughs> you know, certainly the the opportunity to. Um, to bring the wine to the people, uh, for the for the wineries in town, the urban wineries in town that do have tasting rooms, that's a definite selling point, and that's something that that Enso has historically done very well. With folks don't have to run out to the valley or the gorge or southern Oregon to be able to mm -hmm. enjoy the wines. Um, and other advantages, obviously, in terms of proximity to accounts, etc. Makes a big difference. Um, the other great thing about it is with the the Portland urban wine community, uh, if equipment breaks down during harvest, if you need to borrow an extra set of hands, etc. There are folks within close proximity. Everybody in this community locally really works well together, whether they're actual members of the Portland Urban Winery Association, which Ram Cellars actually is, or not. Um, folks always step up and help each other out, and the close proximity that we all have to each other makes it very possible to quickly source the equipment that you need to finish a project, because there are times where, you know, if a pump breaks down, something along those lines, it's really not an option for the long-term health of the wine to, to leave it languishing while you get that taken care of. So the short-term solution is find a partner winery to work with to borrow the equipment and then worry about the repairs later. Um, disadvantages to it, it's certainly always interesting when I'm actually bringing the grapes in just in terms of, you know, rolling a Penske through a busy uh, city street to uh, to get things unloaded. Same thing with any kind of, whether it's bringing in new barrels, whether it's bringing in bottles for the next round of bottling. There are always challenges inherent to that. Um, and you end up with space restrictions, obviously. You know, wineries out in the the valley end up with a lot more options in terms of space. Um, you know, other disadvantages. The, the the city of Portland definitely over the last uh, while has definitely tightened things up in terms of what they require in a you know from a zoning standpoint for mm -hmm. wineries, breweries, and distilleries. So it, there are some additional hoops to jump through, and the costs can be higher both in terms of that and in terms of real estate as well. But I really do think that the advantages outweigh the the disadvantages, or they do so far anyway. <laughs> so what do you see, we talked a little bit earlier about sort of the future for the RAM, but what do you see as you look ahead, say 10 years down the road, for yourself, for RAM, for Viv? So I think that eventually the trajectory that the winery will follow, um, I would like to eventually transition the winery over to uh, just the Viv label. Um, the reason that I want to do that is in terms of what I want my work in the wine industry and legacy to be will be to give back to the community that I'm a part of and eventually over time transitioning Ram sellers fully over to Viv will make sure that everything that I'm selling actually has that donation component and directly gives back. Mm -hmm. um, that's going to be a long-term process obviously. Um, I had to 
fight like crazy to carve out a space in the marketplace for the the Ram Sellers wines, and so it's a hard sell to uh, you know. Hey, we changed the branding on this, but you still like us, right? Um, it represents its own challenges. That'll be down the line. I think that what we'll see in the next couple of years will be a gradual increase of the Viv label wines and then a gradual decrease on the side for the Ram Cellar stuff. Um, but it is really important to me to make sure that all of the work that I do in the industry aligns with that greater goal of giving back to my community, which again, um, for future iterations of the Viv label, and I'm still working on what that's gonna look like, what organizations I would wanna partner with. The other, the other thing with eventually transitioning the entirety of the catalog over to the Viv label, it would allow for the possibility of working with multiple organizations. You know, mm -hmm. have wines that specifically go to specific organizations, um, in, just in order to further the footprint of what I can do and what the winery can do. Um, to do good out there. Mm -hmm. And what do you see as you look ahead for the Oregon wine industry, maybe at large, and maybe more specifically the, the, the Portland urban winery scene? I, you know, I think that we've seen in in the last five to ten years a, an increase in diversity in the industry. Um, would love to see a continuation of that, not just in the the percentage of folks across the LGBTQIA plus spectrum, but also more folks of color producing in the industry, more, a greater representation of diversity across all spectrums in the industry is something that I hope for. It's something that I hope to be a part of. Um, I, specific to myself and my community, I, I hope to see and where possible create opportunities for other folks in my community and the greater community at large to be able to get a foothold in the industry and you know be respected members of the community and have a place because mm -hmm. we're I'm sort of a unicorn out there and so uh, you know I want to encourage others to <laughs> come along it's nice in here so along those lines uh, what would your kind of advice be or your words of wisdom be for someone maybe someone who's not historically been part of a wine community to be to who wanted to enter it <sighs> Well, first, first things first is there's going to be a lot of free work as a part of that on the, on the way there. But just looking, looking for opportunities um, to, to partner with folks who are willing to impart that knowledge base. I think that uh, one of the things that helped further my growth as a winemaker the most was the folks that I had the opportunity to partner with and learn from. Um, Ryan Sharp here at Enso, uh, Ben Thomas out at uh, Montnor, um, Gordon Taylor at Davenlor up in Prosser. Those are all folks that I was able to work side by side with them and actually uh, pick up knowledge in real time. And you know, uh, also creating that toolkit of folks that I can turn to if I find myself in a tricky situation as far as the trajectory for a wine, etc. But the, I mean, I think the biggest piece of advice is just continue to knock on doors because eventually you'll find the right one. Uh, but it just takes tenacity and an understanding that it's a really long road, so. Okay. That's all the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything I should have asked that I didn't? Anything we didn't cover that we should have no, covered? No, I, th I, think I think we pretty much covered the, the story today. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for your time today yeah. for uh, sitting down with us. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at oregonwinehistoryarchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. 
and stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.